So Acts 7, verse 1. You can follow along in the Pew Bibles or on your phones. Um, it might be easier to follow along because, as I said, it's, it's a long, lengthy reading. But if you just want to sit back and listen as well, if you, that's how you do it, then that's fine as well. Acts 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, referring to those blasphemous charges, are these charges true? And to this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Well, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, and he rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. And then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors couldn't find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as their own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue him, them rather, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers, and why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Again, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, uh, rather Jacob. And Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, 
take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to set them free. Now come, and I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? And he was sent to be their ruler and deliver by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't even know what happened to him. That was a time that then they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant, of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven's my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Then Stephen goes on to say, You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Well, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as this, they just covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul proved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, 
Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sermon number two. So here we have it. Stephen is preaching about God's faithfulness, God's promises, God's grace throughout all the generations. The religious leaders charged Stephen with blasphemy, again, against God and Moses, against the law, against the temple. And Stephen addresses all these four points in his sermon, but he's unable to convince these hard-hearted people who, as we heard, they closed their ears and they were yelling like madmen. Stephen is hitting this audience, the religious leaders, with what they already know, with what they already supposedly believe, and what he too knows and believes. He's talking about the Old Testament law and stories, and talking about, again, what the religious leaders believe. He's saying that he believes in God, and he believes that God gave the law to Moses, and he seems, again, to be consistent in what the religious leaders believe. But Stephen had to defend his faith. And he defended his faith, again, using Scripture. He knew what he believed. And he knew why he believed it. Stephen is taking Scripture and talking about his God. The faithful God. Again, the religious believers know about this. That the God that they believe in is the same Old Testament God. And the same God in the New Testament. The same God today. God does not change. He is faithful throughout all generations. Just look at the stories throughout Scripture. Remember and believe. We get to do that again this morning. Remember and believe what our God has done for us. So Stephen refers to Father Abraham. Now, Abraham, you've got to know that he was called out by God from an idol-worshipping family. His father, Abraham himself, they were idol-worshippers. Joshua 24, verse 2. And God, despite Abraham's faith and, and, and belief in idols, called Abraham out to believe in him, to follow him. He was called by God for a purpose. To be the father of Israel. And to eventually have Israel claim land and to be blessed by God. Then the 12 sons of Jacob, or 12 patriarchs, they were a dysfunctional family. The 11 brothers became jealous of their brother Joseph, and Joseph was assumed by his father to be dead, killed by an animal. All the while, the brothers sold him into slavery. And then God used Joseph, too, out of this dysfunctional family to save his people from famine. Joseph was a savior figure. And although these brothers did something terrible to their brother Joseph, God took what humanity meant to be harmful, and God used it for his own glory, for his own purposes. Well, time went on, and God's people of Israel were in Egypt and being mistreated in Egypt. And there was slavery and death among the Jewish people. And God chose and sent another person to be used to save his people. Moses was chosen by God. And yet we hear again in this story that Moses was a murderer. And God still had plans for this murder, for this Moses, to rescue his people from slavery. Israel is rescued 
And then they went against what Moses was saying on behalf of God and what God was saying. And then they made idols in the wilderness. <coughs> Through the retelling of the biblical story by Stephen, over and over again, we are reminded of the shortfalls of the Jewish people, the patriarch fathers. We're reminded of the shortfall of all humanity. And yet through it all, we are also reminded that our God is faithful to the generations. Our God is good. And as we reflect in our own lives, we too have areas that we fall short on Today, people struggle with anger issues, with addictions, things in our lives that we're just not willing to work on because it's too hard or, or even confront because of our pride. We don't want anybody else to know. It is difficult. It is difficult. There's neglect of family at times or friends or even church. A complacent or lazy attitude towards our faith and our relationship with the Lord because sometimes it's just too difficult. Romans 3.23 states that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we're all not what we're supposed to be. We're, not all, we're all not what God intended for us to be. But that doesn't mean that we're worthless or we're unimportant. God still has a purpose for each of us. Look what he did with an idol worshiper. Look what he did with a murderer. He has chosen each of us for a purpose. And once we recognize that, yes, we have fallen short, we can also recognize God's amazing grace and His faithfulness in our lives. Because God says, yes, you have fallen short, but I've taken those sins upon me. And I'm going to use you for my glory, for my purpose. So people, do we see our faithful God at work in our lives, in the lives of His church, in the lives of His people? And that's what Stephen is talking about through this story. Stephen is saying that same God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. And guess what? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And that's not blaspheme. What is being preached and taught and communicated is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That there's only one God and the new doesn't destroy the old. The new builds on the old. Now I think we have to understand a little bit that the religious leaders, they're serious about this charge of blaspheme. In their mind... Stephen's blaspheming against God and Moses and the law and the, and, the, and the temple. They really feel that Stephen and others are bringing heresy into the religion of the Jews. So what they're doing is they are trying to protect their religion. What's going on is that they're actually worshipping their religion rather than worshiping the God of their religion, the God of their faith. We worship God. So like Stephen, we too need to stand up, like he did, for what we believe. We have to stand up for what we believe. And, I, and I'm not talking about what we believe, about our preferences, or about certain issues. For example, I'm not talking about how we 
how we think and how we look at one way or another things like children at the Lord's table or women in office or discussions that occur about pro-life or pro-choice or our perspective of how to embrace the LGBTQT2+. All these issues, they're important. But that's not what Scripture means when it says to stand up for what we believe. Yes, we, we will interpret Scripture and, and hopefully most of us have our reform lenses on that we wear. But I think also our reform lenses are often different shades. And when we're talking about issues, that's not our core beliefs. They're not our absolutes. I mean, some of these are core values. They're important to us in order for us to live out our beliefs. But let's not get confused with what we believe. This week at our Faith Formation class, we read a quote in our book about the Reformed tradition. And it goes, quote, At its worst, the Reformed tradition can concentrate so hard on obeying God's will that it becomes downright legalistic. So instead of giving others a heart full of God's encouraging good news in Jesus Christ, the gospel message, it has often given them an earful of stinging criticism instead. Not a pretty practice or one we should continue. The quote goes on. At its best, though, the Reformed tradition practices the faithful exercise of mutual discipline. Discipline, discipleship, disciples of Jesus disciple each other. On our journey through life, we keep showing each other the way. So we need to tell each other the truth, but also do so in love. End quote. When we tell the truth of the gospel, let's always begin by telling each other what we believe about our triune God. God our Father, God the Son, our Savior, God the Holy Spirit, what do we believe? This week I was also reminded of a quote, again, from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And I think part of what this means is I don't know what I don't know. Do you get it? I don't know what I don't know. There's, there's always going to be something I'm missing. We can't possibly speak on all the issues with certainty. But what we can speak with certainty is what we believe. What we believe in our triune God and his promises to his people. What we believe in Jesus Christ and his saving work for his people. So if you're going to speak to me about women in office or same-sex relationships or other issues, of course, I will listen. We should listen. We need to be in a listening posture always. But there's so much I don't know. But what I do know, I will share. What God has done for me, what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, that I know and we celebrate today. When we stand up for what we believe, 
not what we want or what we think, but what we believe, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, that the God of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and Israel is the same God today and is our faithful and sovereign God, when we stand up for that, for what we believe, what we do know, that's what God desires of us. That's what God desires of his people. Now, when we do that, it's hard. It's difficult. We might get ridiculed. In some countries, you might even get killed. Persecution of faith occurs today. But despite the outcome, when we stand up for what we believe, we can trust that God will not waste an opportunity. And he will use the good and the bad to lead people to him. Our standing up for Jesus will not be in vain. So here we have Stephen's sermon. And Stephen's not referring to issues. I mean, issues will come up throughout the book of Acts. You can look at Acts 15. They actually had a council meeting on circumcision. I can't imagine having a council meeting on that. But that's what they did. But this sermon from Stephen refers to truth about God's love and God's amazing grace throughout the generations. It's interesting also to note that through this message that we are reminded that Abraham was promised. He was promised the possession of land. And Abraham only received the promise. He himself didn't receive the possession. His descendants eventually received the possession. But you see, we have the promises of God. And sometimes the, the possession of his promises may take some time. But his promises still never fail. And that's what Stephen is talking about. Abraham had faith in the promises of God. And so did Stephen. And yes, it did get him killed. Today, too, we also have promises without possession. We have the promise of eternal life. The promise of the resurrection of the dead. And then there's the waiting. The waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. And we can wait with the assurance that our God never fails. And God calls us to have faith in Him and in His promises. Some we've already seen revealed. Jesus Christ, who came as a baby to this earth, who died on a cross for our sins, and we look forward to His coming again. God's promises continue throughout all the generations. Now, there are many things that we cannot say for certain. We only get a glimpse. But God's promises and His faithfulness to His people are certain. So Stephen's sermon was about God's faithfulness. And then in verse 51, Stephen may have been a little zealous and bold, especially when he stated, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. How many times aren't we told not to use the word always and never? But here he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And this really angered the Jewish leaders. And so they thought that they could stop this heresy, what they thought was a heresy. But it wasn't a heresy. It was a truth. And the truth was unstoppable. Stephen's death resulted in promises from Acts 1, verse 8, being fulfilled. 
The gospel was being proclaimed in Jerusalem, and now because of persecution and threats on people, the gospel was being scattered throughout now beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The church was growing, and on account of the first martyr Stephen, the church was again exploding. Standing up for Jesus was not in vain. When we focus on the truth of the gospel, the certainties of Jesus and on his promises, the church will grow. When we proclaim the certainty of our Lord and Savior, the church will grow. And a growing church is not having a goal of filling the pews. Sure, that's important to fill the pews, but that's not our goal. The goal of a growing church is sharing the gospel message, being part of the journey of leading people into a relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel message, through what we know and we believe. And that certainty we celebrate at the table today. That certainty that God sent His one and only Son so that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. We celebrate at the table God's grace through all the generations. And Jesus Himself says, let all the generations come to the table and experience My promises and My faithfulness and My amazing grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And together we say, Amen.